Well, let's begin. Today, when we begin in prayer, I want to read to you, and we're going to pray together, a prayer that some of our forefathers put together. It's from this book, Valley of Vision. If you have an opportunity to get one of these, they're Puritan prayers. They knew how to pray. And if you read these, you go, oh, man, my prayer life is horrendous compared to this. Oh, Lord, I live here as a fish in a vessel of water, only enough to keep me alive. But in heaven, I shall, I shall swim in the ocean. Here I have a little air in me to keep me breathing, but there I shall have sweet and fresh gales. Here I have a beam of sun to lighten my darkness, a warm ray to keep me from freezing. Yonder I shall live in light and warmth forever. My natural desires are corrupt and misguided, and it is thy mercy to destroy them. My spiritual longings are of thy planting, and thou wilt water and increase them. Quicken my hunger and thirst after the realm above. Here I can have the world. There I shall have thee in Christ. Here is a life of longing and prayer. There is assurance without suspicion, asking without refusal. Here are gross comforts, more burden than benefits. There is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconst inconstancy, rest without weariness. Give me to know that heaven is all love, where the eye affects the heart. And the continual view of thy beauty keeps the soul in continual transports of delight. Give me to know that heaven is all peace, where error, pride, rebellion, passion raise no head. Give me to know that heaven is all joy, the end of believing, fasting, praying, mourning, humbling, watching, fearing, repining. And lead me to it soon. And everybody said, amen. Our passage from this morning is from 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to start at verse 16 and work through 5.10. Remember, when this was first written, there were no chapter divisions nor verses. And therefore, you can read right through the numbers. Let's stand as we listen, as we hear, as we contemplate the word of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. With that, we end the reading of God's word. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and you may be seated. We're working on the second part of Lord's Day 22, Resurrection, Body, and a Life Everlasting. We dealt with the first part, and it's, it's just so much material in thinking about the resurrection body and everlasting life that I had to split it into two Sundays, where we talked about, we were talking about the four mysteries that have to do with resurrection body and the life everlasting. Mysteries in the sense that the key word for today is speculation. Looking at the resurrected body and eternal life is like opening a door just a little bit. And you get to see something of what's there. But you don't get to see the whole picture. And therefore, what we are left with is to speculate what's behind the door. And most of what we need to do is remember, we are speculating. Therefore, it could be wrong. It could be partial, but it at least is built on a foundation that the scripture gives to us about what it's going to be like. We've talked about the four, and that's what a mystery is. I'm, I'm using that word in that sense. You, you get to see a little bit, but the rest is hidden. So we talked about the mystery, what occurs at death in the intermediate state, that we are wrenched from our body, our soul continues to exist, and we are waiting for the return of Christ and the reunion of body and soul. Mystery number two, what will it be like with the new body? Well, it's going to be a body that is raised incorruptible, indescribable in a sense. So what we, and what we're going to do with mystery three is expand upon that and look at that even more. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in mystery two, and I will remind you, is that the resurrected body is resurrected by the power of God, which is a euphemism for the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Father plans, the Son procures, the Spirit produces what has been procured and planned. And so even with the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies, it's a Holy Spirit. And therefore, in the Heidelberg Catechism and the Apostles' Creed, when they wanted to talk about the resurrection of the body and a life everlasting, instead of putting it up with the section on Jesus, they put it on the section, the Holy Spirit, the third section. And all of the, that's in that last phrase has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take a look at not only speculation, but the other word I want you to think about is uh, anticipation. Anticipation. 
Because as we speculate, this is meant for us to anticipate what is before us. You may have heard the phrase, those who are heavenly minded are no earthly good. Well, people lie about other things too. In fact, the most heavenly minded people are the ones who are most earthly good because they anticipate what it's going to be like and they hear the word of the Lord that says, get ready and do good. Do what you're called to do. And in the last two, two mysteries, number three and four, that's what we're going to take a look at. So mystery number three, it's in your outline. What will the spiritual body be like? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 talks about, we look not at things that are seen, but at things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That the light momentary affliction is preparing for us. And listen to this. And this is why you listen closely to the word of God. An eternal weight of glory. Eternal, everlasting. Weight, gravitas, glory, radiance. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what the, part of what the spiritual body will be like. And so I've said from this passage and from others kind of different ways in which we know what the spiritual body will be like. Number one, it'll be a Christ-like body. John 3 where John is talking about how God has forgiven us. He goes on, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. A little earlier in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says that we are all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed from one degree of glory into the next. But when Christ comes, transformation's finished. And our body will be like Christ's body. Now, that means you go back to the Gospels and you see what the resurrected body of Christ was like. It was like his own body because it still had the scars on his wrist and on his side and on his feet. He showed them to Thomas and the apostles. It was a body that could eat, which probably means that in heaven we'll still be able to feast on great food and not grow fat. <laughs> Some people will appreciate that. It was a body that could do different things than his normal body in that he could, quote, disappear. Some may mean that he just left or that he had the ability to appear and disappear. It was a different type. But that's a Christ-like body that we're going to have. And so what, one of the things that happens at his coming is that we go beyond the character of Christ to the very quality of his physical resurrected body. Secondly, it's a building, not a tent. 
5 in 2 Corinthians 5 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. One of the greatest generals America has ever produced is General Robert E. Lee, fought for the Southern Confederacy. When he was dying, his last words were, strike the tent which was not only a military term, that is, it's time to leave camp and go out, but was also a reference to this verse, strike the tent. And the difference between our bodies now and this body is the difference between canvas and concrete. When I went, first went camping, we didn't have nylon tents and we didn't have all, you know, tents that you can fold up and stick in your backpack. We had these big, lumpy, heavy canvas tents and you had to carry these huge wooden poles, three by threes, and it was a pain. You didn't even, you didn't even think about taking a long hike with them. The problem with canvas tents is if it began to rain and you touched them, water leaked out, and it leaked into your tent. So you were very careful not to touch it. Well, what do you do in the middle of the night? You're sleeping, and all of a sudden you go, boop! The water comes pouring in. Well, not pouring, but it comes dripping in. That's what our bodies are like. They leak. And the older you get, the more they leak. Oh, isn't that encouraging for (laughs) y'all? You just got to realize that's what's going to happen. On the other side is concrete. Our son-in-law is a Navy chaplain in Okinawa. And they get some horrific storms, tsunamis, uh, something similar to hurricanes. And they've had a few this, uh, this fall that have come through. I mean, they'll push over vans and RVs and they throw around porch, porch furniture. It's, it is, the wind is terrific. But you know, they made every building out of concrete and they never lose a building. Compare that to the panhandle of Florida. Was a Hurricane Matthew comes in, comes to an Air Force base, rips it up except for the concrete buildings. And now they're in the process of having to redo it. Hopefully they're smart and they'll put in concrete buildings. That's the difference between the two bodies. Between that which leaks and has problems and that which is concrete, which cannot be destroyed. That's why we will have a building, not a tent. Number three, a seed sowed, which changes to a plant. There's a continuity with a physical building, and I've put some verses there you can look at. And yet there's some difference in the quality between the two. 1 Corinthians 15, which again is a passage that you read and you study to think about the resurrection and the resurrected body. 42 to 49 goes this way. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, uh, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body and is raised a spiritual body. 
if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. First man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was a man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is a man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul talks about how it's sown one way, it grows in a plant in another way. You know, we know that now as you watch the farmers with their fields. They are harvesting that which they sowed in the spring. Corn, soybean, whatever. I notice they don't harvest too much skunk cabbage. But that's we're all different types of seeds that are being planted and that will indeed be harvested at his coming. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one of you is a skunk cabbage. I'll let you figure that out. Okay, But that's what it's like. Just as uh, the first Adam was dust, the second Adam is a spiritual being. It is different. And the, listen to the way in which Paul describes it. There's different qualities. It's imperishable. It will not wear out. It is healthy. It is strong. I don't know about you. For, for me, that's a real comfort when your body begins to give out. And you get a knee operation and you have it a new knee put in and the muscles aren't working well. And I'm standing here going, I wish I could just lay in bed. See, but I, the body that's coming is imperishable. It cannot, cannot be destroyed. It's raised in glory. The word glory means beauty, honor, radiance. You remember what happened to Moses when he spent time with God? He came out with such a glow that they said, cover your face, put a, put a scarf or something over your face. We can't imagine, we can't look at you. And that was just the reflected glory of God. In the resurrection, we will have radiance. Radiance, a glory, a, a glow. You see young couples after they've been married and we look at, oh, the glow of young married couples which doesn't last too long like Moses being away from God. But we say, oh, you're glowing this day. Well, that'll be every day we'll be glowing, a radiance, a glory like that. In fact, our Lord even said it in Matthew 13, a parable. He said, God's people will shine like the sun in heaven. You remember the sun. We saw it yesterday for the first time for two weeks, and it was really nice to see it. And it lit up the trees that had changed color. Well, that's what it's going to be like. Raised in power. Not weak and puny. But a complete human power. It will be able to do exactly what we want it to do. There are times when you ask your body to do something and it can't. In my operation, they gave me a spinal to knock out the lower part of my body, anesthesia for the operation, because I wasn't going to listen to what they were doing. No way. I woke up in the recovery room, 
And I said to my brain, move your legs. Would not move. And I got angry at my brain and said, brain, move your legs. And it would not move. Not going to be that way in heaven. You will be able to use your body to the fullness of its capacity. Raised in power. Then raised as a spiritual body. It's the idea of a spiritual body is a, a, a body that is consistent with the character and activity of the Holy Spirit. It is now qualified as a final resting place for the Holy Spirit within you. Remember how Paul mentions the Holy Spirit with us? Ephesians 5.18. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's passive, that means somebody has to do it to you. It's constant, that means being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event, but it's a continuous thing that you ask for over and over and over. A better translation might be, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because in this life, we leak, we grieve, we quench, and we have to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. Won't have to then. And he will give us a body that is qualified for our new place and that will have the full possession of the Spirit as much as a human being can have. You know, there are times when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It is just exciting and marvelous and you feel alive and moving and you've got power and all that. And again, it ebbs out. Imagine living every day with that same power over and over and over. And the Spirit has filled you to the fullness that you can accept and that you can take. That's what that spiritual body is like. Doesn't that sound good right now? Especially those who are looking for a cup of coffee to get the jolt. <laughs> I think we'll drink coffee in heaven for the flavor, for the taste. Not because it gives us a jolt. We don't need it for that. Mystery number four. That's mystery number three, which is what will the spiritual body be like? Mystery number four is what will heaven be like? Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for us. It is the beginning of, et of eternal joy of a joy inexpressible. That's how Peter talks about the Christians in 1 Peter 1. That you have a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. And he was talking to those who only had it to a small degree. In heaven, we have joy to the nth degree. We don't even have a phantom of an idea of what that joy is like. Again, Part of it's speculation, but part of it is we can't accept and we can't take that kind of joy within us. Our body is just not ready for it. Our human body, our dust body. It's a place in which Paul says we are going to be fully clothed and beautifully clothed. Second Corinthians 5, 1 to 4, and we'll go to the end. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed further clothed that we will have the best of all. It's 
one of the reasons that last Sunday, this Sunday, I wore my blue suit. Gift for my son. Not because I want to show that I have a blue suit. But I want to show you what it is to be fully clothed. Further clothed. I mean, I could take it off and have a shirt and, you know, I could come like some of you do. No, oh, hey. <laughs> but I want to show you, this is what heaven is like. Have fully clothed. The most beautiful tux, the most beautiful prom dress. That's a, a sense of what it's going to be like. And it'll be joy unspeakable. It'll be a place of great beauty and joy. Psalmist says, in your, the fullness of your joy is in your presence. And we will be in the perfect presence of God. And therefore, we will be filled with joy inexpressible. Revelation 21 and 22 are another key passage to think about what heaven is like. And 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You've got to remember to the Hebrew, the sea was uh, horrendous. It was terrifying. They really didn't have much of a navy because they didn't like going out to sea. Other countries had to bring things to them. And so the idea that the sea was no more is that that which we hated is gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The sense of that is, before the tear has an opportunity to form and roll down the cheek, he goes, and it's gone. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then it goes on to describe a little bit more about that city. The image is, again, putting in our, our words what it's like doesn't have to be necessarily physically true, but it's the idea that is conjured up in your mind. Imagine. Imagine the most beautiful city that you know. Steel buildings. Gorgeous. And you see the city as a whole, not the, the dirt and everything else in it. That's only a small part of what the heavenly city is like. In it is a lush garden. Imagine the most beautiful garden you have ever seen and you've walked through. Imagine walking through the woods on a day like today and watching the trees at the height of their color. And you are absolutely amazed at how beautiful it is. And that's but a small percentage of what that garden will be like. It's a lasting foundation problem with buying a house is no matter how good they laid the foundation, one day it's going to crack. And when it cracks, the walls crack and things begin to disintegrate. How about a foundation that will never crack? You don't have to worry about it. And that is but an nth degree 
a small part of what it's like. A street of gold. And I have it on good authority that there are no potholes on this street of gold. <laughs> yes! Won't have to worry about airport road being fixed. A street of gold and the sparkling that will happen because of the light that is there. A sea of crystal. Have you ever seen a lake, a beautiful blue lake? Sometimes it's up in the mountains and it just radiates and it looks like it's filled with crystal. That's what it's going to be like, but even more. A wall of precious stones. When the light comes through that wall of precious stones, it sh shatters the spectrum all over the place. And that's but a small degree of what it's going to be like. Huge. It said 12,000 stadia, or some translations put that into miles. If you put it into miles, it's about 1,400 miles. That's from New York to somewhere in Kansas. Why you would want to go to Kansas, I don't know. No, it's between New York and Kansas. And then you got to go south 1,400 miles, back, and then you got to go up 1,400 miles. That's way up past our atmosphere into space. The idea is not, the city is not that size, but it is humongous. It is bigger than you ever thought. And the biggest city and the most beautiful city is nothing compared to this. It's a wedding celebration. I've gotten to go to a lot of wedding celebrations in my life, and they're usually very happy. Oh, there's Uncle Charlie, who's always grumpy anyway. But most of the time, it's very happy, and it's beautiful, and there's dancing and singing, and, and everyone's congratulating one another. Say, oh, wasn't the bride beautiful? Too bad she got that husband. <laughs> but that kind of celebration, and the marriage will be a celebration like that, except it will go on forever. And what kind of celebration we know is nothing compared to that celebration. There's a tree of life which, from which you pick leaves that will bring healing. If you need a leaf, you take it off. And they always grow 12 months out of the year. And in a sense, if you read it, you could say that every month there is a new fruit that comes out of that tree. I mean, we have to wait from spring to fall to get apples. But every month, new fruit that you can pick and you're allowed to eat it it's not like the first garden living water you remember the hot days of summer when the best thing that you could have is a tumbler of water with ice cubes in it and you drink it and as you drink it you go oh that's good and then about five minutes later, you go, I need another drink of water. <laughs> five minutes from now, I'll need another drink of water. In heaven, it reproduces itself. It's living. You never go thirsty. In heaven, you get manna from heaven. I had to cook my own breakfast this morning. I would have much rather gone out and picked up manna off the grass. 
But every day you'll be fed. And you may not even have to cook it. Again, speculation. For those who love to cook, you may, very, you may cook all the time. That way. Unending light. How do you like it being dark at 523 in the afternoon? <laughs> Unending light. You'll see everything. And everything will be illumined and magnified by that light. Unceasing worship and prayer. Now, the picture that some people give of heaven is that you, you die, you go up on a cloud, they give you a harp, and you have to play on that every day. Every time, if you, if you have to go to sleep, you wake up in the morning, you get your harp out and you play. I hope they have lessons for us because some of us don't know how to play a harp. <laughs> Others do. That's not what heaven's like. You're going to praise God and you're going to praise him in spirit and truth to the fullness that you are. And you are going to pray. You say, why do we need to pray? What is prayer? Prayer is communication with God. Prayer is God walking in the early evening seeking to talk to Adam and Eve. And that's what it's going to be like. You're going to be able to talk to God all the time. And that... It's but just a small idea of what heaven is like. It's a place of great beauty and joy. It's the beginning of complete blessedness. We begin to receive what we have, uh, to rejoice in what we have received as has been earned by Christ. And we must understand always that everything we received from heaven is not because of us, it's because of Christ. What he did and what he does in and through us and what we allow him to do. It's our final hope. When heaven, when the Lord returns and our body and our spirits are put together or we are transformed in the twinkling of an eye, this will be a place where we are fully human more than we ever imagined today. We think we're human. No. We're subhuman because sin ruins us. This will be a place where we are fully human and the fullness of your personality and the fullness of your personhood will come out. And we have, I don't think we have any idea of what that's going to be like. We play around the edges and we look at the corners, but we never see what it's like. That's what we anticipate. Think about that. Fully, fully human. And we look forward to a, to a stupendous life. There we are. We are rewarded. Second Corinthians, again, chapter 5 where he ends our passage by saying, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I've heard people use that as a, a way of manipulating. We will not be judged for our sin. Remember, our sin was judged on the cross 2,000 years ago. And God has declared us to be righteous, holy. 
And God says, I will remember your sins no more, which means not that he forgets them because God cannot forget. He's omniscient. But what he does, he will never recall our sins back to us. And so if you have sinned and repented and you've received his forgiveness and all of a sudden that sin comes back to haunt you, uh, understand that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not God. That's the enemy. And you look at him and say, hold it, enemy. That's already been taken care of. What are you doing? Get out of here. That's a rough translation of the way you can say it. If you're really mean and angry, you can say it in a different way. But the whole idea is that God doesn't recall our sins. What he does judge us on is how we have pleased him. How we have acted in accordance to his will. Have we spent our daily life doing what he calls us to do? And using the gifts and the abilities that he has given us to do. Have, have we tried to the best of our ability and with the power of the Spirit to obey what the Word has to say? And has we, have we fought against the temptation to disobey, the temptations to sin? Have we been a people who have sought in the circumstances of life where God is leading and directing us? And have we sought that in our life we are more pleasing to God than we were yesterday or the day before? That is, we are more and more doing what he wants us to do. Our reward will be for our service and our faithfulness. That's why we tell people, you go out and work for the Lord. Because someday you're going to stand before him and he's going to say, I gave you an opportunity and you didn't do it. That's not manipulation. That's simply what's going to happen. Not make you feel bad. It's, it's meant to say, now, okay, you know that? Go out and act in a different way. That's what it's called. We have an inheritance. Peter says it's an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by God's power. Sometimes we know we have a rich uncle who's going to die and we're in his will. And we look forward to that inheritance. But that inheritance doesn't last long. Look at the stock market the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Lost thousands of dollars. Some even more than that. But there is an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We are going to be ruling with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 to 3. Paul says, take care of the issues within your church. Why are we not going to be people who rule and judge men? Are we not going to judge angels? He says, and if we are, we need to take care of one another. Feasting. Revelation 19, 6 to 10. If you read it, you'll see what a sumptuous marriage feast. And God is no piker. I mean, Jesus, who was at a wedding feast when they ran out of wine and took water and turned it into wine, God will be able to give us such a feast, we'll be absolutely amazed. We will walk into the banquet room and the tables will be piled so high with food. We'll go, oh man, there's no way I could ever eat this. I'm going to be here forever. And he's going to say, yes, you will. <laughs> That's how good the marriage feast is. It is also 
a place of great security. Heaven, the city, has walls. It has a great foundation. It has gates, but those gates never close. The reason you have a castle with wall and gates is that when the enemy comes, you close the gates so that you're safe. Heaven is a place where the gates never close, and you're still safe. It's a place where there is no mourning or crying or pain or suffering. He wipes away the tears from your eyes. It's a place in which there is no sin. And you are absolutely, positively secure there. Why? Because he is in the midst of it. And as Isaiah says, he holds you in the palm of his hand. Again, notice it. It's not you hold his little finger. He holds you in the palm of his hand. That's how secure you're going to be. And it's an unhindered creation. 2 Peter 3, 11 to 13 talks about how, and Revelation 21 says how he's going to make new heavens and a new earth. Again, to the Hebrew mind, there were three heavens. There was the atmosphere, there was space, and then there was heaven itself. And when Peter and John talk about it, he says, new heavens, new earth. Not that the old is going to be destroyed, it's disintegrated. It will be transformed. It will be transformed from the sin-filled, sin-directed, sin-soaked world that we know. And that even the universe, the atmosphere, is filled with that. To a place that will be perfect. It will be like going back to the garden before that fateful meal by the tree of life. Or a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They never got to the tree of life. Heaven is going to be a place where when the sun shines, as it will, it'll be beautiful. Everything will be gorgeous because there's no stain. There's nothing that deters from the absolute beauty of what it was. That is a purging that God will do of all the imperfections and we will live in this gorgeous, beautiful place. In my family, we've had for a long time, thanks to my grandfather, a beautiful place up in Michigan. Yeah, I know, that state up north. And they beat Penn State yesterday, which was horrible. (laughs) But we go there because it's a place of solitude. When I was pastoring it, I called it my uh, uh, fortress of solitude because it was beautiful and gorgeous. And yet I know the weeds because I've had to cut them. I know the the spiders that come in and the mice that are there, and I know all the problems that are there. But heaven will be a place unlike that at all. And that is a place that Jesus said he's preparing for us. And that's what it's going to be like. But that's not the best part. The highest blessing and the highest joy, Paul John said in Revelation 21, is that we will be with God and he will be with us. Finally, we will enjoy the presence of our greatest treasure and our greatest joy. Sometimes in prayer, sometimes in worship. Sometimes when you're driving down the street, God surprises you with his presence. 
And it's a treasure. It's a joy. You don't want it to end, but he says, now nah, we got our things to do. Heaven is the place where we are going to see our greatest treasure. And we are going to love him and run up to him. And, and we will be able to put our arms around Jesus. And we will be able to rejoice in who he is and what he's done. Because everything, all of this has come because of his life, death, resurrection, his ascension, and who he is. God will be fully known as much as we can know him. He will be fully appreciated for who he is and what he has accomplished. If you've gone through Tozer's book on the attributes of God, you get but an inkling of what it's like. And you say, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to know exactly and fully what that's like. I'm going to get an idea of what eternity is. I'm going to get an idea of his omnipresence and omniscience and omnipotence far more than I ever know. I'm going to get to know him. It's one of the reasons I think the scriptures talk about our relationship between the church and Christ as a bride and a groom. I, keep, I, I tell people for whom I do premarital counseling, I look at them and say, you think you know each other? Wait until you're married. Then you find out what that person is really like. That's why marriage is a covenant. You make an agreement. And all of a sudden you get to realize they squeeze a toothpaste tube from the top and you would do it from the middle. They put down the toilet seat, you leave it up. You get to see all of those little things and you fully get to know the person and you fully get to appreciate the beauty of that person as you take them. That's what it's going to be like with God. And that's our highest joy. That's our highest desire. And we will praise him forever. I gave you a couple verses to look at for exactly that. Here's the implication. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10. Our goal in this life is to please the Lord where we are. Not ourselves. Not one another. But to please God. And to live in such a way that we are pleasing unto him. And what we are doing as we live that way is that we are preparing ourselves in one degree or another to our new home. We're getting the furniture ready. We're getting the thinking ready. We're getting ourselves ready so that the jump between life and life is not a huge chasm because we've been working at it down here. But it's a jump into the pleasure of the fullness of all that there is. You see, God is preparing you right now for that holiness. He is preparing you right now to be in his heaven. And our work is forgetting what, behind, what is behind. We strive forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we are reminded, as Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And that is where we're really called to live. And those who have understood that and lived there are the ones that have done the most for, 
for this time because they know that pleases the Lord with whom they're going to spend eternity. That is what it means for the resurrection body and the everlasting life. Let's close with prayer. Oh, Father, we get but a glimpse. You give us a foretaste. You whet our appetite for what it's like. And then you remind us that we are called to live here as people who look forward to it, but who have a responsibility here to please you and to do what you've called us to do. May we never forget it. May we be hungry to be with you in heaven, but may we also satisfy part of that hunger by being your servants, your douloses, your bondservants here in this world. For there is nothing greater we can do than to give glory to you on this time we're here. Take what has been said, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit, cemented into our hearts and minds that we may be reminded of it when we need it the most. And help us, O Lord, to live for your glory in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.